Well, as it's been said on social media, we have officially flattened the curve when it comes to COVID, but we flattened the curve on the wrong axis. It's like if you look at the chart nationwide, it's shocking. Maybe you haven't seen it, but if you look at uh, the COVID case chart since March 2020, where we are now, the line is straight, but it's straight up oh, in I comparison to where we were. So those first, uh, what we were saying, the a big wave and then the first big wave, right. we are, at least when it comes to cases, we have dwarfed that th those numbers. Omarion is not playing out here. And there's been a lot. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, Omicron, you know, right. sort of looks like, you know, shout out to Omarion. Okay. Well, well, one of these All days right. I'll bring some of his music on Triloquy. Um, anyway, Omicron is not playing and discourse around testing and resources, supplies, all of that sort of thing sort of touched the arts, the arts world. So I wanted to uh, get started by just seeing what you thought about something. Uh, there was a quote going along all of my timelines by uh, Professor Walid Gelad, a professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He said, we don't want our limited testing supply tied up by people who just want to know so that they can visit their friends or go to the opera. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? When I first read that, my response was, we need to pay attention to every way that something arts adjacent, especially something classical, so-called classical music adjacent, pops up in the world outside of the concert hall, because that gives us an idea of what the temperature is like for things like opera out in the world. And as far as this doctor is concerned, it seems like he thinks opera is just a waste of time and a waste of resources when it comes to dealing with COVID. What do you think? That's what I heard. I heard him say, look, we have people who are standing in line for two hours that make minimum wage. Um, and you want to take this test so that you, you have money to go to the opera. Yeah. So there's going to be people who make minimum wage. Um, it, it'll cost them to stand in line and they need to get back to work. And you're talking about going to do something fun. I, I, I of course, on my timeline, a lot of the response was, well, there are actual people who work in those industries and our uh, livelihoods are also important in X, Y, and Z. You know, I, I, I get that. And I get how it's easy to, as an artist and as an arts activist uh, and advocate to sort of lean that way mm -hmm. and respond that way. What I think is significant, though, is that it's hard even for me to justify the use of limited resources when it comes to testing and all of those, all of that stuff, especially if you want to think about this as a global issue. We're, you know, we're talking about almost four shots and it's uh, folks who haven't gotten their first shot in yeah. certain parts of the world. You yeah. know, so limited resources and the allocation of resources, it doesn't seem like and, you know, you y'all can kill me if you want to, but it doesn't seem like putting resources towards someone's ability to go see Wagner and Rossini and all of this stuff is the most equitable use of the resources. If opera houses by and large represented more of the community and more community narratives and wasn't such a colonized space within classical music, one of the more colonized spaces in classical music, I'll say, if it weren't that, it would be different. But 
when we talk about the opera house and when this doctor thinks of the opera house, he's thinking of what he thinks of. And I think we need to pay attention to that as uh, put, you know, a little bit of urgency, even more so behind our work of breaking down all of these art forms and and, uh, creating diversity and equity, because we need our art form to not seem pointless or useless or only for the bourgeoisie, especially as we move forward. COVID isn't going anywhere. I've just decided that we need to learn how to live with it. Um, and opera is not going to be seen as a viable thing if opera maintains its status as what it is. I think we, I think we can do our part by making sure that folks like um, uh, Dr. Galid, Gilad, sorry, you know, thinks of opera as something different because I think his ideas were clear based on that quote. It's been going around social media. I just wanted to get started by, you know giving some light to that bit of the conversation because folks were trying to be mad at me, but it is what it is. Why, why, why would I advocate for the uh, uses of, of resources for a place that for the past 130 and whatever years has only put on one opera by one black composer? You know, that's and not an equitable use of resources. And we've got a line full of people trying to find out whether or not they can go back to work. Listen, folks who are trying to pay rent, you know, and all this stuff. Anyway, right. hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 133 of the Triloquy Podcast. Uh, since the last time we uh, taped, Scott, uh, we lost a few people, but I want to uh, get started by um, offering a, a rest in peace and a rest in power to the late Sidney Poitier. We'll talk a little bit more about his story and his significance in the first movement, but I wanted to get started because as I've been learning more about him, his legacy, um, and watching documentaries and reading, one of the recurring things that you know I was especially interested to learn about was the slap heard around the world, as many people say, <laughs> remembering the slap. So uh, this week's downbeat comes from a historian and archivist named Charles Woods, who talks a little bit about what that meant. Uh, and, and just to put some context around this, so Sidney Poitier um, in uh, 67, I believe the year was 1967 or 57, y'all can correct me, was in a, a movie called In the Heat of the Night, where he was a detective who uh, went down south to help solve this murder crime. He and the guy he's working with find themselves in the home of this racist white man. And uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, the character he plays, believes that this man has something to do with the murder. So uh uh, the the racist man feels disrespected and smacks Sidney Poitier in the face. And like in a second, you know, Sidney Poitier just reflectively, reflexively smacked the man back. And that was a historic moment, you know. So uh, Charles Woods here speaks a little bit to that. Let's listen. 1967, in the heat of the night, this Southern racist white guy is insulted and slaps Sidney. Sydney slaps him back. We all said, whoa, the whole nation. Whoa, I called it the slap heard round the world. They always used to bring up the Southern box office. We don't want to upset the Southern box office. They never gave a darn about black sens- sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I feel that what Sydney was allowed to do in in the heat of the night was the start of black exploitation. And they go on in the conversation about Sidney Poitier's significance. I chose that excerpt from this conversation because we have to remember when we think about the significance and legacy of Sidney Poitier, where he was in history, he was on screen slapping a white man and 
if you think back to the 60s, the late 60s, there was a lot at risk, not only for him as an individual, but for the uh, the institutions and the structures that put this film up. Now, despite um, fears over what Southern audiences might think about a movie that has something like that, they went ahead with it and it played a pivotal role in Sidney Poitier's career. And then, you know, we can talk about all of the other incredible things um, that, that has been done. Uh, first and foremost, when we step back from that picture of Sidney Poitier himself and think about the conversation of not upsetting certain audiences, it seems like, Scott, that ties directly to what the classical industry deals with a lot. There are a lot of institutions that are doing some work and, and where we see some movement, but there's still a fear of not centering that traditional audience in the, in the programming and, you know, whose sensibilities are, are, are central as it's been laid out here. Do you think just stepping out there and taking a risk is what more of these institutions need to do or is a soft step perhaps the better uh, way forward for us. Yeah, you know how I think about that. Um, there's, we always, we, you and I always talk about who is this for whenever we bring in mm -hmm. an article that has the opportunity to draw some fire. Right? Yeah. Who is this for? Okay, well, there are, are we 10 minutes deep yet? We're yeah. close enough. There's a shitload of people out there who are not ready to take the, the, the Garrett McQueen size steps. Sure. They need to start taking the baby steps, mm -hmm. smaller things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I hate to say it. That's incremental change. Yeah. What I think we also need to look at, uh, you know, that uh, Charles Wood speaks to here. We had seen violence in movies before, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I'll put it in the description for y'all to uh, take a look at. Charles Woods talks about how they allow black folks on the screen to beat our mother, at least back then, beat our mothers, beat our children, be violent, be uh, murderous and X, Y, and Z as long as it's us. But the idea of a black person doing that to a white person, smacking a, a white right. person in the face, that right. is what was just really crazy for people. I feel like disrupting and destroying some of those respectability politics, cultural and racial respectability politics is a vital part of it. I think we also see reverberations of that today. Like I said, we'll get into more into it in the first movement, but let's think about um, the lay of the land when it comes to Black art and Black artistry within classical music. We talk about the uh, the the downtrodden tunes. We talk about Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed and all of this stuff that just speaks to the, the misery of mm -hmm. being Black. It seems like Black joy or or even beyond that, Black activism and Black disrespect for respectability politics is something that the classical industry maybe isn't avoiding, but doesn't really know how to engage. It seems like um, it's much easier to talk about William Grant Still as the first X, Y, and Z, despite all odds. Maybe it's not so easy, uh, or we don't know the stories uh, of William Grant Still's joys or the things he loved, maybe even the music that uh, demonstrated some of his own dreams and aspirations. You know, his catalog is deep, and I'm just bringing him up as one example. But I think that's something else that we have to really pay attention to. In what ways are we allowing the Black narrative to be platformed, you know? but The time frame the that movie came out was you said the late 50s early 60s right yeah 1967 i think so he said if you think about 
the same sort of ways that women were being treated in right. the film at the same time. Do you, th and, but that's changed a lot for women. That's evident. Do you think that black characters and black uh, creators have seen the, the same change that women have seen on screen? I think uh, we've come a long way, certainly for women. And and then, of course, you know, when we're talking about black folks, we're also talking about women because there are black women. So we have to remember to uh, center them in the conversation. So um, the the same thing that I'm talking about, you know, being comfortable with seeing the uh, the the black sorrow when I think about um Academy Award winners, you know, Sidney Poitier, I think was the first black person to win an Academy Award. Right. When I think about some of these other uh, black women, specifically Academy War Award winners, we're talking about Halle Berry, who had to all but be raped by a white man on screen, you know, in, in Monsters Ball. We're talking about Lupita Nyong'o, who had to be a slave and be whooped uh, and raped, you know, within inches of her life to get the Academy Award. So I think a lot of these things repeat. A lot of what Charles Woods is talking about um, is is repeated, but that's what makes this moment one of the many moments that makes Sidney Poitier a, a, a pivotal part of the conversation when we talk about civil rights across all of society, much less just within the arts. Of course, you know, I'm sure he he felt a way. I wonder how many takes they needed for him to slap that white man. You know, one. <laughs> maybe I would have. Maybe I would have been. Maybe I would have been like, oh, I maybe maybe we should do that one again. I think I blinked <laughs> or something. <laughs> anyway, I'm not I'm not advocating for any violence. I'm not smacking any black uh, any white men. At least not uh, today. But I do feel like you know week after week we do our best to smack respectability politics at least in the arts. So let's go ahead and get into it. <laughs> Triloquy Opus 133. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to returning listeners. Thank you for continuing to support and keep this boat afloat. We're really doing some incredible things, have some great things planned for this year. So we thank you for your continued support of this show. For new listeners, if you're new to Triloquy, this is a podcast that takes the idea of classical music and frames it in a way that is more relevant, more culturally competent, and speaks to today's conversations and today's sensibilities with so-called classical music and all genres of music as the guide. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, please visit Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-I.org. You can find past opuses there and find out ways how you can donate and support the podcast in many ways. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from the Springboard for the Arts. They're a local institution that makes sure local artists are able to have a, a good way of making a living and a life and just affirms the vitality of art in our communities. More information on them is 
at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to give a huge shout out to Maria Issa, last week's uh, guest in the third movement for a reminder all of uh, Minnesotans. Uh, Maria Issa is a local artist running for state senate. So for more information on how you can support Maria Issa, visit Maria Issa, M-A-R-I-A-I-S-A dot com. I also uh, want to give a shout out to Joy Goodry. Um, they have an incredible project coming up, Radical Acceptance. Have you ever thought about the concept of radical acceptance? That must be, you know, something Radical huge. kindness, maybe. Yeah. Um, radical Acceptance is an upcoming album by Joy Goodry. You can um, check out their work, one track from that work over on their band camp. The full album is going to be released on February 4th. I'll be sure to pick out a track or two to tell y'all about, but I just wanted to put that on everyone's radar. Huge shout out to Joy. And uh, finally, I wanted to send a thank you to uh, the Walnut Hill School for the Arts for having me in to speak to the students about the seven last words of the unarmed. They're going to um, present that piece uh, here in a few weeks. And in addition to pre pe preparing the piece and rehearsing the piece, performing the piece, um, the school is making sure that the kids are uh being given a little context around the piece. So I was brought in to introduce them to each of the victims laid out in the piece to talk about how that piece of music impacted my life and my career and just to be uh, one of the people who's going to help prepare these kids. I think that's a really great sign of what equity looks like in the arts, not only programming this piece of music and not only putting it in front of the kids, but making sure that they have all the context that they can surrounding it. Um, uh, Denise Graves is going to speak to the kids. Mm -hmm. um, Aaron Dworkin is going to be there. Joel Thompson himself um, wow. is scheduled to speak with them. So it was a real honor for me to open up and uh, 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 be the first in these series of speakers to prepare the students. Scott, I have to say, you know, as I was just um, here, uh, a part of my presentation was to, uh, again, introduce and talk a little bit about each of the victims to the kids to just humanize these victims for the kids. They, these aren't just seven names. These are seven humans who lived, who had families and friends and experiences. And by the time, you know, I'm getting to the um, seventh person, you know, I just have all of this trauma that I've taken in. I just found myself sitting in this chair crying, thinking about these folks. So, you know, as, as we continue to um, think about this piece of music, just remember that there um, are experiences there, and uh, we I, I want to make sure we aren't trivializing sure, something sure. that has you know become so uh, uh, central to the conversation in the arts. I know um, Joelle sometimes can tire of being asked to speak about this piece because I'm sure there's a lot of trauma in there for him. Of course. Um, but, but just huge shout out to the Walnut Hill School for the Arts uh, for having me. I really appreciate the support. Joelle Thompson is actually going to be the uh, guest next week um, to talk about a different work, The Snowy Day. This week, we're going to hear from Andrea Davis Pinckney, who wrote the libretto uh, for that opera that's in the third movement. But for now, let's get into movement one. So I'm going to get us started, Scott, uh, with a sharp honoring those who we have recently lost. Number one, Bob Saget. Rest in peace to the now late Bob Saget. I didn't watch Full House. Um, I'm, I'm not really familiar um, with much of his work, but he was definitely a very famous face and a very um, influential and impactful man in the uh, theater arts and in the acting arts. So rest in peace, rest in power to um, Bob Saget. I also wanted to say the name Ahmad Arbery. 
uh, since we last recorded, um, his murderers were sentenced to life. It's always weird for me to be celebratory in those moments because I center the victims. Mm-hmm. I, I center the black folks. So it's not about me being happy that someone is going to jail. I think more about uh, the the feelings of those folks left behind, you know, especially his mother. Sure. And as I watched the um, sentencing, Ahmaud Arbery's mother said something that really struck a chord with me. And I want to uh, find it here while, while, while I'm looking for this um Talk, talk to me about the Ahmad Arbery case. Did you watch the the verdict, the sentencing? Is it something you were paying attention to specifically? I watched a little bit of the proceedings and also the sentencing. And uh, actually, it's good that you brought this up because I was going to ask what you thought about the difference between the two getting life with no chance of parole, the guy who held the camera life with a chance of parole. I suppose there can be some redemption for him, and uh, you know, if I, I was if I were the judge, maybe that would have been a little bit a little bit different. But I thought I, I thought I did think that was interesting. Um, mm. But hopefully, this really sends a message to everybody who thinks that this thing is going to just slide. This sort of violence is going to be okay. You know, they're in jail forever. They have to spend the rest of their lives in jail because they wanted to do what they did. Anyway, I, I found the uh, quote uh, from Ahmaud Arbery's mother. She said, this wasn't a case of mistaken identity or mistaken fact. They chose to target my son because they didn't want him in their community. They chose to treat him differently than other people who frequently visited their community. And when they couldn't sufficiently scare or intimidate him, they killed him. That really struck a chord with me, Scott, because that is repeated over and over and over again in so many ways. Um, you know, I can never compare um, anyone's experience or even my experience to losing a child. But when I hear her say, you know, when they couldn't sufficiently scare or intimidate him, they killed him. How many people have been um, removed from situations, fired uh, from jobs, uh, even uh, be being seen as a pariah? You know, I'm thinking about orchestras right. and, you know, where there's tenure and thing, you know, the, the proverbial walls that can be built up around someone, especially a woman or a person of color who can't be controlled or, or can't be intimidated. I think um, when we, you know, as we connect this to, again, to the late Sidney Poitier, rest in power and rest in peace, he's one of the many folks who refuse to be subjugated. And, you know, luckily he was not killed. You know, we, we, we will, we remember his legacy forever, but through the many characters he played, including in the heat of the night, where we were talking about in the downbeat, where he slapped that white man, he was not going to be, his characters weren't even going to be intimidated. And that was something really important for folks to see um, back in, certainly back in the late sixties, when that movie came along. And even now, you know, as we um, remember, can can you talk a little bit uh but you know i'm going to say a few more words about Sidney Poitier but i wonder if you could respond to that or or think about the idea of um subjugation in the face of actually being challenged or a person having a little bit of confidence have you ever felt um afraid to stick your neck out or or really stand up in your own truth or in your own opinions for fear of some sort of uh response all the time yeah yep of course speak more to that uh it's something that i grew up with what what can i say i was i was scared to open my mouth when i when i was coming up and it's something that i still have to work on i feel like i get walked on a lot yeah um but at the end of the day i look at it as um 
<clears throat> it didn't really hurt me. I'm still fine. You know, maybe mental or emotional scarring, fine. But I'll, I'll, I'll push those down and let them out at a completely unrelated time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, sure, right. Where my, where's my... Right. <laughs> like when you come over here. No. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and, and just to, you know, again, continue to, to solidify that point, I'm going to uh, read the synopsis for one of the many films that Sidney Poitier, uh, you know, was in and, and helped pave his career. This was 10 years before In the Heat of the Night, a 1957 film called Edge of the City. If you just Google Edge of the City synopsis, it says Axel Nordman takes takes a job as a dock laborer and is continually harassed by his tyrannical supervisor, Charles Malik. Malik knows a secret from Axel's past, forcing the young worker to endure his boss's torment. Eventually, Axel befriends Tommy Tyler, played by Sidney Poitier, who is an African-American co-worker with a managerial job. Tommy teaches Axel to respect himself. However, Malik, a racial bigot, is threatened by Tommy's confidence and the situation turns violent. Is that not what we saw with Ahmad Arbery, not exactly. We aren't talking about a workplace, but the the skeleton of the issue still remains. Racism is threatened by confidence from people of color, especially black folks. Well, actors are brought on because of what they bring to a role, mm -hmm. and uh, I I think that they probably would have been shortchanged if Sidney hadn't improvised that slap. Didn't you tell me it was improvised? That's what Dell said. But if it was improvised, he has reflexes like a rabbit because <laughs> yeah. you know, he was, as Sidney Poitier said, "No, the cameras are rolling, and you're not going to do that to me." You know, so I, I'll, I'll do some research on that. But um, right, because yeah. if if that's true, then you know you just saw a man bring everything he had to the screen. Yeah, you know that's commitment and how important and, for him too. Right, exactly, yeah. and and for people to see it. Uh, the following year, in 1958, uh, Sidney Poitier was in a film called The Defiant Ones. In this film, basically, the what people talk about is um, he's escaping jail, chained to a white man who is a racist. The uh, the at, at the big uh, climax of the of the film, they want to jump a train, you know, to to get out of the county or whatever. Sidney's character, Sidney Poitier's character. Uh, is able to get on the train and the white man, I think his name is Joker, his uh his character's name, um, is running and 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 can't quite make it. And then as soon as their hands reach each other and uh Sidney Poitier's character is able to grab onto him, he's pulled off the train and they roll down the hill where the sheriff eventually catches them in X, Y, and Z. In documentaries that I've been watching, they point that out as an important uh movie as far as some of the racial allegories that Sidney Poitier was dealing with in the roles he would take. They talked about how in white theaters, again, because we're talking about segregated theaters, despite right. a segregated cast, in the white theaters, there were sorts of cheers of joy because, you know, this black man on screen is um, valiant enough to stand by his friend and X, Y, and Z. And then, of course, in the black theater, they're like, why in the hell did you jump off that train for that white man? You know? <laughs> See, so, I, I would have thought he was trying to pull him onto the train. Right, of course. That was, that was the point. But okay. But because the and, train was going so fast and uh, Joker couldn't quite run fast enough, he Sidney Poitier's character just ended up getting pulled off the train because he was holding on to yeah, uh, Joker's that. hand. I get that. So, I you guess. know, there, there's a lot of allegory in there, you know, getting pulled off the train for folks who aren't quite there or can't quite run fast enough or whatever. Mm. And, I'm, you know, that that's the movie. I'm, I'm not making anything up. So or you it, lose a foot. 
Sure. So it's, I, I think it's interesting, right. I'm sure it's just, uh, it was something for people to see how this work of art really became subjective. Mm. And um, I think as we move forward in Sidney Poitier's uh, career, you know, um, he he kissed a, um, a woman on screen. And I think if that wasn't the first, that was one of the first times um, in a movie, you know, there was an interracial kiss. So, you know, su such a, such a pivotal, uh, uh, figure in American history, not only when it comes to being black in cinematic spaces, but being black and having conversations, demonstrating, performing conversations that deal with white folks and black folks being in connection, being in being in fellowship. It's mm. it's it's really something to think about. So rest in peace and rest in power uh, to the late Sidney Poitier. Scott, if we're trying to, okay, here we go. Let me just go ahead and do this for myself. <laughs> if we're trying to catch a train if, if, and we're running, Dude. and I know I'm a little younger than you, so maybe I can run a little faster. I'm gonna need you to be ready. I'm not trying to leave. I'm not trying to leave you behind. But if the police is after me, you're gonna have to understand that I can't get off that train. Hey, look when <laughs> when I am properly motivated. I will move in ways that you would not Ooh. be, you would not count on. Yes, Watch. yes. <laughs> All right. Well, to transition us out of this first accidental here, um, I found a piece of music um, by Quincy Jones, one of our great black composers. Quincy Jones wrote uh, the score for a film back in 1968 called For Love of Ivy, another film that featured the late, great Sidney Poitier. So we're going to uh, bridge that gap and transition into the next accidental with a bit of that score for The Love of Ivy by Quincy Jones. I know that the music from The Color Purple makes it onto a lot of classical platforms, you know, but we're hearing music right there that is just as classical and the vibe is a little different. You know, it's a little, uh, I don't know, it, it just reminds me of golden era California, you know, when I hear those sounds, those lush movie sounding orchestral things. This This music definitely belongs in classical spaces. Was that a harpsichord I heard in there? Oh, I wasn't even paying attention. It could have been. I think there was a harpsichord in there. It sort of reminds me of this uh, album called Space Age Bachelor Pad Music. Okay. Which is, you know, very, <laughs> like, you know, think of that sort of that vocal style, that... Which I hate. <laughs> but yeah, it reminds me of that. Yeah. Anyway, great music. Just shout out. You know, we, we have to we honor the greats, Scott, when they pass on. So, you know, rest in peace, rest in power to Sidney Poitier. We also need to do a better job. And I've seen some people doing this on social media of honoring the greats while they hear, you know, so shout out to Quincy Jones. We love you. We love you, brother. You know, somebody check on around. Quincy, please. Somebody check on him. We need to make sure he's still there. Anyway, our next um, accidental. I'm gonna give this one 
unnatural. It's, it doesn't really deserve a, a sharp or a flat. I'm actually putting two stories into one. We're talking about folks in the biz, in the classical industry, who just decide that it's it's time to go. So the first one I'm going to um, speak to is... It deals with um, the Seattle Symphony's Thomas Dausgard. I saw this on social media last week. Mm -hmm. um, he abruptly got out of here, said he, he's done with the Seattle Symphony. There's not a lot of uh, uh, talk about any specifics or any sort of internal drama, um, but he did give us this quote. He said, my decision to step away at this moment when we've realized such collective artistic success is a result of these pandemic times, which centers the question for all of us, how do we value our lives? That's I think, the quote I pulled too. I think that's, that's really something uh, that is a really deep question, a really important question. I mean, what's your answer to that? How do we value our lives, what we do to make money, what we, yep. you know, what sort of an impact we make or what, how pro much, what promotion what, are we getting? What how much money do we make? Do we right. Or what bonus? Yeah. Yeah. I think the pandemic has shifted that for a lot of people because a lot of people's offices were closed. And, you know, while virtual work is one thing, you can't really play office politics and <laughs> do all of that in front of Zoom, maybe not um, in the same way. What do you think we have to do to shed ourselves of the conditioning of valuing ourselves based on work or even based on profession. I know certainly in um, in the orchestral world, I'm sure you can speak to the same thing in theater. You are a better person. You are a more accomplished person if you win a job with X orchestra or, sure. or join X ensemble or mm -hmm. X theater mm -hmm. company or, or whatever. What do you think we need to do to sort of shift away from that sort of old age value system. Oh, you're talking about me now. Sure. Old age, yeah. Sure. No, <laughs> or we, anyone. I we've don't know. had this conversation before and I remember telling you, and I believe this still that it's going to be your generation and on that does that. Because I think that I'm on the tail end of people having it ingrained in you that you need to have a stable job, that you need to have something with benefits and longevity. Yeah. You know, you might not get rich at it, but at least you've got enough to get by. Yeah. I think COVID even has impacted that idea of a so-called stable job because mm -hmm. all of these people who were laid off of yeah. these companies who probably could have kept them on. I think there was there was a lot of fear at the beginning of the pandemic and people just sort of pulling the trigger when they didn't necessarily need to. Yeah. You know, how stable would those people say a job is now in retrospect, you know, considering the years of work that some of these folks put in these organizations for them to just be swatted out of the back door because we don't know what's going to uh, happen with COVID. So, you know, that's one of the things I think that we need to address as we move forward and shifting the value system, really coming to grips with the fact that our situations are, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a house of cards more times than not, even mm. if we don't see it that way. I don't know. I feel like right now people uh, are doing everything they can to have their staff not leave. I feel like I could walk into work with Kleenex boxes on my feet and be like, what are you going to do? What are you going to fire me? Oh, well, as long as you don't change the playlist. But anyway, watch me. <laughs> uh, what, another thing I wanted to uh, talk about, you know, along those same lines, I read this really interesting uh, piece piece by uh, Zach Manzi, uh, the title of it um, is, uh, let me scroll up here. This is why I ended my career 
and classical music. It's a long essay. I encourage y'all to take a look at it. But uh, two two little things I wanted to pull out of it are this. Zach Manzi writes, I wanted to get involved in really making classical music more accessible and inspiring to more people, as I'd seen how this music could move all kinds of people if presented in the right way for them. Now, as we uh, go down, um, it says here, I finally admitted to myself that it was time to move on when I realized that I could not generate a solution to this problem alone and that I was sacrificing my life and health for something that was not going to give me the return I needed. Mm -hmm. That kind of breaks my heart, Scott. What Mm -hmm. do you... Uh, th- this person was pursuing um, an orchestral career and, w- and was working in, uh, in in that field. But for any arts field or arts adjacent f- field, radio, anything, what would be your response to to hearing someone say that? I wanted to make change, but I finally admitted to myself that I can't do this change by myself. I'm not going to be a martyr for it. So whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I feel like, what more can I say to change minds? Yeah. What? else what how can i tell this story differently to have somebody come to a realization that might have missed it another way yeah um the question is i don't know i don't know how the i don't know how my brakes land and i'm just and i'm taking this from a a radio perspective sure sure that um i need to keep on telling these stories in the hope that i'm going to catch somebody in the right moment Mm -hmm. in the hope that maybe something will turn on a light and a full on half of the time i i have the uh, the argument you're you're kidding yourself you're absolutely kidding yourself that you think that you're going to make a dent but if i don't how do i feel good about the work that i did that day let me speak to a little bit of the uh, work he did. He writes here, I began creating new concert formats that were conceived using audience first design in which the creative team considers the audience's experiences as the primary driver for decision makers, for uh, mm-hmm. for decision making. So we've talked about that over and over again, finding programming that matches the sensibilities of the audience that you want or, you know, the, the ways that you want to grow your audience. Again, he felt like like uh, he was alone and uh, apparently uh, as, as he writes here, you know, in the structures he was working in just got so much pushback that he just couldn't deal with it anymore. What is keeping these things in place? I think we just need to frankly Indeed. and flatly what? speak what? of these things. And from my perspective, it, it's people's paychecks. We're going to, we're going to get down to capitalism in the fourth movement today, but that must be what it is at this point. You know, we we have the proof as to what this sort of so-called pops concert or this sort of um, peripheral content that these uh, uh, institutions put out there. There's proof that it sells. You know, that it, it pulls in an audience. They still don't want to center that. You know, we're still looking at uh, an arts ecosystem, at least an orchestral uh, and opera ecosystem that continues to just center include you know black things and uh women uh composed works and x y and z you know includes those things but centers the old european tradition i just feel like folks are in bed with money havers or something and just refuse to to push the needle um I don't, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I feel like if we're talking about radio, we're talking about program directors across the country who don't want to risk their own paychecks. You know, the, the oppression of capitalism manifesting in that way. 
Is that what it is at I the would, end of the day? And if that is what it is, how do we be uh, have the conversation in a more frank and honest and unapologetic way? I think that if you go and look at who owns a lot of the classical stations where the where the license sits, yeah, a lot of them are at universities right. or or um, public school systems, or they're they're part of an education system somehow. Sure. And um, there's folks sitting in there that don't want to rock the boat. They're trying to get to retirement. You know what I mean? Uh, they're not trying to hear anything new when the milk is coming from this spigot just fine right now. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, what we also have to think about is that folks like Zach um, and even Thomas Stalsigard, I'm sure he'll be fine over in Europe where he's uh, living right now. But especially folks like Zach, we have to consider the fact that it's hurting the genre is is hurting the art form to allow folks to just fall off in this way to burn out and say fuck it i don't want to do this anymore you know this could be some uh incredible stuff that he's talking about you know uh reframing uh the what what did i read here the way that uh uh programs are uh, just put together you know new concert formats that's the phrase i was looking for you know so it hurts the art form to not have that in my opinion and i think it just speaks directly to the fact that it's not about a lack of talent by young folks in classical music, diverse people in classical music. It's not a lack of talent, it's just a lack of opportunity. You know, and when we talk about lack of opportunity, we have to consider the space in which these folks come. It's not an opportunity for a person of color who is an artist to go into this into a space where they can't be their full selves, where they can't express their ideas and actually put things into action, not being given uh, any power within those spaces. That's not an opportunity. That's some sort of cultural servitude that we're trying to move away from. So Hmm. I, I hope people will think about that. You know, there are a lot of folks falling off, you know, I'm I'm very happy about um you know what I'm able to do here on Triloquy and and the way you know my my entrepreneurial ventures if you want to call them that are going but I know that I would be an incredible radio host I know that I would uh engage people on a morning drive or an afternoon drive or whatever and be really great and I have the knowledge in music to go along with it we're not looking at an industry that can really digest what I have to bring to the table and my sensibilities and my ideas of what classical music should mean when we use that phrase. So here we are, you know, so let's uh, take me out of it and talk about um, the string players who don't fit into orchestras in similar ways, the wind players, the singers, you know, the uh, producers and engineers, the folks who have all of the skills to mix and master classical recordings, but can't fit into those spaces because they want to mix and master more than Haydn and Handel, you know. So sure. I, I think it's a lot to think about. And we we shouldn't sleep on the fact that every day there are folks who could really move the genre forward falling off because they aren't able to exist in those spaces. So um, I really hope that um, Thomas Dowskar will be fine. You know, I, I will probably be reading something from Slip Disc here in a month or so about it. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I, don't, I, I won't. <laughs> sure, sure. I just want folks to, you know, think about um, this essay by Zach Manzi because it's, it's really important and it's a testament to why um, so many people who could be on stage, who have the skills, uh, the talent and the determination to be on stage choose not to be 
because of our value systems, because of the way the status quo is controlling everything and everything in between. So uh, since we're talking about Thomas Dalsgaard uh, and the Seattle Symphony, I found the Seattle Symphony's most popular performance on YouTube. Hmm. And which one was it? Who do you think it is? Maybe Beethoven Grieg. 5? It was or, the Grieg, right? Yeah, yeah. The the Grieg in the Hall of the Mountain King, I think, has uh, uh, over 1 million views on YouTube, at least as performed by the Seattle Symphony. But the video that has almost 11 million Go views ahead. is this one. Let's take a listen. What? I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. When a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get strong. Wanna pull up tough cause you notice that butt will stop. Deep in the jeans she's wearing. I'm hooked and I can't stop staring. Oh baby, I wanna get a picture and take your picture. My homeboys tried to warn me but that butt you got me. Ooh, rock a smooth skin. All right, listen. Listen to me. I'm looking at the faces of these orchestra members. There are smiles on their faces. They're having fun. I'm sure they feel so cool, you know, and so popular in that moment. You know, you often have to ask uh, bass, at least in my experience, you have to really beg bass drummers, orchestral percussionists to actually hit the damn bass drum, you know. Really? But they... Somebody back there in the percussion section is feeling it because right. <laughs> that drum need a new head. Okay, listen. <laughs> We have the numbers here, Scott. I understand how some people would consider performances like that a desecration of the classical music space. You know, I'll, I'll link it on YouTube. Um, there are women, all Sir uh, Mix a lot called women on stage to dance with it and, and X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Even if we want to reduce the conversation to financial viability, this is our example. This The views on this video dwarf all of their other videos, the the money that they have gotten from YouTube by posting this video, I'm sure outnumbers some of the uh, the the income that they receive from some of their in-person concerts before COVID. Because you know? it's a specialty show, because it's like the Harry Potter uh, orchestral along with the films. It's the um, uh, it's it's your pops show. So if they do more of this, does the the viewership go down because you know, it's no longer special. It's no longer different from what they normally do. I'm saying when we talk about transforming the orchestral space, we have to transform what we perceive as the role of an orchestra to a community. Why does this city or why does this town have an orchestra? And what does this orchestra do? No, it doesn't need to be Sir Mix-a-Lot every weekend. And yes, there can be some Beethoven and some of the other uh, Western European composers in there. But I think we just have to have the courage to center the community. And just like uh, Zach was talking about in his piece, center the community, what they want to see, what they want it to experience, and shift the role of an orchestra. I'm not saying that we can't have strings and winds and percussion. I'm saying right. the role of the strings and the winds and percussion as it relates to a community has to be shifted. That's that's that that's what I think we have to really move toward, you know, with Sir Mix-a-Lot and Baby Got Back maybe being a 10. Let's make more of our concert programming a seven. 
or maybe even an eight. I you see know? what you're saying. Sure. Um, anyway, so baby got back one Negro spiritual um, to some older spirituals. What mm -hmm. you got accidental wise this week? I guess I'm just going <laughs> to give this one a natural. I okay. found this on National Public Radio. That's NPR.org. Um, we're talking a little bit about reparations. Um, some white congregations are paying to use hymns written by enslaved African people. They're paying. Mm -hmm. If y'all want to sing, sooner we'll be done, wade in the water, whatever, y'all need to write a check. Well, tell us more. Um, basically, they're 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 starting with some vocabulary, and one of the things you know the that we heard in the downbeat was Sidney Poitier and like the beginning of black exploitation. Yeah. And I wanted to know your thoughts on if that is a negative word or not to you, because to me, I look at it as the description of a genre, right? Yeah. Do you think it has a negative connotation? For you? Um, I'm not a, a movie historian, you know, that's not my uh, specialty, but you know, basically the way I think about it is black exploitation films, you know, that phrase is a testament to um, the condition and the circumstances of black people at that time. You know, we, uh, Mr. Wood spoke to how he, you know, thought how and why that uh, came about. I think, you know, recognizing it as black exploitation is not only, excuse me, honoring the tradition and the countless individuals who played a role, you know, in, in those genres of film. So we're honoring those folks and giving a shout out to these movies, but we're also naming the significance of the time and why it was that. I think about um, the phrase Negro spiritual mm -hmm. in a very similar way. I know a lot, maybe, maybe you'll get into this. I know that there are a lot of white folks who are uncomfortable with the word Negro. Right. I, I, cont I continue to use the phrase Negro spiritual because it not only places identity and culture on a genre of music, but it places time on a genre of music, you know, using that word Negro, the discomfort that some people feel around using that word, I think should remind them of why there are Negro spirituals. What is the Negro spiritual, you know, how it evolved and what we need to do with our knowledge of that American and world history of why there was the Negro spiritual. I think using the word Negro, um, keeps us mindful of mm -hmm. the time and place in which that music existed. I'm not sure why I never attached a negative connotation to the word black exploitation. Oh, so you never did, right? No, it just it just it just for me it was a label of genre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and, I never did myself. And there's some amazing performances that have come out. And Quentin Tarantino uh is a disciple of black exploitation film. He need to he need to not be so comfortable with that N word though. But yes. Testify. But, but yes. But we can't deny the fact that that was his influence. Right. So we're talking about the importance of vocabulary and and really coming down to defining these words because you used Negro spiritual. Whenever I use it on the air, I usually get emails from people wanting to know why I use that word, and I always write back simply because that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this article, uh, one of the uh, pastors that they interviewed about this idea of paying to do Negro spirituals, he starts out there. He says, we are going to talk about Negro spirituals today. Words matter. And while they are using the word Negro, even in this context, gives me discomfort. I can acknowledge that the discomfort is mine. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the shame that I feel as a white person of privilege. So he's starting to set it out for the congregation. Sure. And this is a man the, preaching. <laughs> right. And so basically what they did is they started to uh, take up the, the collection plate would go to benefit some 
uh, black organization. Right. So they're looking at that as paying reparations, you know, something that they can do besides put up their Black Lives Matter sign. Out right. So when them. so when they sing, follow the drinking gourd, you know, they pass around the plate and say, OK, so we need to pay for this because black folks created this music and they have not uh, been paid for, you know, not systemically in the way other creators of musics have been. So let's get some money and give it to a local black organization. I love it. Right. So they talked it through. They landed on the I'm uh, quoting here from later in the article. They landed on the idea that they're calling a reparations royalty program, which could potentially include donation any time they perform a song by any black composer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you talked about the decentering aspect. Um, one of the other quotes here, we have to decenter our own feelings. This is not about alleviating our guilt. Rather, it's about inspiring communities to build deeper relationships with people who look, think, act differently than we do and have different historical realities. And that do. is the most important part, because yeah. I know a lot of people will put a 20 or even put a 50 in that collection plate and, think and say, done. OK, right. I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Does she, you can check that <laughs> off your I, list. I, I, I put twenty dollars into the black collection plate last Sunday at church or whatever, you know. So it uh, th that that's so important, you know. Yeah. So when they put that, when you maybe if one of y'all are listening, when you put that money into the collection plate, what is what do you know about the organization that where that money is gonna go? Do you have any connection? Have you walked into the building? Have you asked to take a tour or you know? Just having some sort of connection. So I'm, I'm glad that was pointed out there because that's a very, very, very important um, aspect of this. Uh, I, I think it's great that, you know, this is also to a lot of people who might be listening right now might not think that this is a big step. But to others, this is a very sizable step and in a positive direction. Yeah. So, so how long before? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Just the way that my mind works and I have to figure out a way to say it that's acceptable. How long before it's going to be a while, years, the orchestras, the opera houses, <laughs> the radio station, Scott, every time you air William Grant Stills Afro-American Symphony, somebody up there need to be writing a check, just like this church is doing. I know we are, we a long way from that. I'll answer my own question. We're a long way from that, but this is a great example, especially when we're talking about arts institutions, because more things have a black influence than we always even recognize. It's not only about the Negro spiritual, it's about country music, it's about rock and roll, you know, it's about all of these things that exist on uh, the perceived white side of the fence, I'll, I'll just speak uh, plainly, that deserve that same attention. So, you know, we need to see the music venues doing something or, you know, maybe, maybe that's what reparations looks like on a national level. Hmm. Of course, you'd have, you know, some of these states ain't going Ain't, ain't, ain't gonna act right. Who so. knows? If you read further down in the article, the and you can also listen along on NPR.org as you as you go down. They're they're trying to take this on the road. They're trying to take this to other other congregations and show them how they can implement it where well, they are. Well, shout out to this church. Praise the Lord and keep performing black music because <laughs> the, I'm sure those organizations uh, need that support. That's that's really something. And All I right. said a natural, right? Didn't I? Yep. Yep. Okay. A natural. Let me. I'll give it another natural here. All right. Well, uh, we're gonna that that does it for the accidentals this week. We're gonna transition into the second movement with a setting of a spiritual. I'm sure you remember, I forgot when it was a while ago, you came over here with a record, with a vinyl 
that had a whole bunch of Negro spirituals on it. It was uh, the title of the record is Let My People Go, Black Spirituals and African Drums. It features the Howard Roberts Chorale and percussion by Jonas Guangua. I really love the album. I have used it in a lot of my programming and a lot of my uh, guest hosting on radio stations. I think this is music and, and an album that everyone needs to be familiar with it you know it ties the negro spiritual with the um with the african aesthetics of of the drums and the music so you know folks have to understand that that's an artistic decision that's being made connecting the diaspora black people from two different parts of the um of the globe so you know the way that that's done i think is just really beautiful so the one we're going to take a listen to today is uh let my people go incredible drumming here by jonas guangua and again vocals by the howard roberts chorale Scott is that music like that will be sitting in a in a dollar bin at some of these record shops. This timeless music, this this music that is so pivotal to understanding what is American music, much less classical music, just sitting there collecting dust. I'm glad you rescued this piece of music because everybody needs to know about this 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 record. This That's album. four dollars ever spent. Incredible, incredible music there. I'll I'll put more information about that in the description. All right, we're here in the second movement where we are taking the second ending. We take a piece of music we've been listening to over and over again all week, and instead of repeating it fully again, we take the second ending and put a little context around why we've been listening to it. I'll get us started this week, Scott, with a little bit of music from the world of video games. When I get in in my challenge, you know, in, in my opportunity bag, when a, when a new opportunity <laughs> presents itself to me, sometimes I need to go into my music and just dive in and live there. So this past Sunday, I was in one of those opportunity moods mm. and um, I just let my um, let my music collection go on shuffle. I heard one bit of video game music that I have forgotten about deep in my collection. So I decided to just go down the video game music route and see what was calming me down and getting me into a, a better mood, maybe even a different mood. And there are so many things that I could bring in to talk about. I'll I'll bring in uh, some of the other tunes I was listening to in, in some weeks. But what I wanted to bring in today was a tune called Oppressed People. First and foremost, this comes from uh, Final Fantasy VII, uh, you know, video game folks all know about this uh, legendary game. This piece of music was the one that actually tipped, uh, not, uh, you know, tipped the hat to a black musical tradition. Again, you know, music by Nobuo Uematsu, this Japanese composer who borrows from different sorts of cultural sounds to create the soundtrack to these video games. Well, this is the bit of black music that's on here, and he decided to call it the oppressed people. So, you know, if they know way over there in Asia mm. about the plight of the black folks around the world, you know, I, I think that that says something. Anyway, it, um, it kind of gets into that Jamaican bubble, as we say, and is supposed to depict what it looks like to spend some time in a sort of seedy, red-like district-y sort of town. And it sounds a little bit like this as performed by the consoles. Let's listen. 
just picture it in your mind Scott you're walking down the street in this seedy part of town dim lights neon everywhere and you're looking around at all of the possibilities all the trouble that you can get in Mm -hmm. that's what some of these bits of uh, music especially video game music can get you into and how can you remain frustrated or excuse me in an opportunistic mindset (laughs) when you hear music that's that smooth and this and it's that cool you just find yourself getting into that sway and it takes you all the way away the consoles are um a band yeah a a, a band that take video game music and sort of reimagine it in a smooth jazzy kind of way i really um appreciate the existence of this recording i've played it for you uh before but returning to it this week was significant to my mood they're tight <laughs> yeah sounds sounds really incredible uh definitely check out all of uh, the music as performed by the consoles they have some great stuff out there but my pick for this week is called oppressed people again i think that title is a little shady but that's okay because From i appreciate a uh, final fantasy seven there's some uh final fantasy seven music that um, i aired at npr it, it, it goes to the rotation every now and again a suite i think of different tunes this tune ain't on there i was gonna know. say does oppressed people uh, does it line up with a video game yeah the video game final fantasy i'm 7. sorry i'm sorry i'm not asking the question <laughs> what what at what point in the game does it show up oh like i'm saying you're in this uh part of town that is called wall market which is basically a, a black market where the point oh, okay where the point of the video see and shout out to everyone who knows this game at that point in the game your male character named cloud has to complete a number of side missions to get a ribbon and a pair of panties and a dress and makeup so that you can get into drag and sneak into the house of the uh, pimp that's running the black market. So, you know, and this video game came out in 1997. I'm in sixth grade talking about pimps and a prostituting myself and X, Y, and Z, you know, <laughs> See, shout out to the video games. I didn't know that you were, I haven't played it. And I thought that you were, you were talking where it took that music took you down the seedy alleys of your mind. Oh no, I've never, Oh, I've never been there. I'm, you know, okay. I'm saved. Very good. <laughs> anyway. Um, Nomuo Uematsu, brilliant composer. Anyone who's ever played a video game, certainly the Final Fantasy series, knows the significance of his music. There are many tunes by that composer that I stand and live by. Some more will come down the line, you know, as as we continue with Triloquy. But shout out to the consoles and uh, their rendition of Oppressed People from Final Fantasy VII. Is your music a oppressed sounding this week no my music is free sounding this week it is um it's going to be a release for you um we were just talking not too long ago about wondering if the things that you say make a difference Mm -hmm. if you make a difference if you're constantly pushing this rock up a hill and you know it's just going to roll right back down to the bottom again sure but you keep going Mm -hmm. because if not, then then you know nothing changes, right? Right, right. 
Um, so for my second ending, I want to give a shout out to Peter Bogdanovich. He's a, an, an actor and director who died um, the day after Sidney Poitier, if not the same day. Mm. Uh, he was 82 years old and he played Dr. Elliot Kupferberg on The Sopranos. And there was one song in particular that comes from The Sopranos soundtrack by a man called Fred Neal. And he has such a, a wonderful baritone voice that just comes and wraps around you in a gossamer blanket. And I love the guitar at the same time. And I listen to him sing these words wistfully and think along with him. This old world may never change Where it's been And all the ways of war Can't change it back again I've been searching For the dolphins In the sea And sometimes I wonder As they said on Coming to America, that boy good. <laughs> He's singing. Where does that um, music take you when you're listening to that? Where, 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 where are you emotionally? Uh, adrift, adrift. Um, I feel the release of the soothing sound, but he's talking about, I know th this world might not change, mm -hmm. you know, and I find myself, uh, one of the lines is sometimes I wonder if you ever think of me. So that takes me down the line of all the friends back home that I've sort of lost contact with past lovers and girlfriends and, uh, family members that I've lost over the, the, you know, the, even just the recent months and years, but over the decades. Uh, there's another line. Sometimes I think about Saturday's child, and that makes me think about the days of not having to adult mm -hmm. and the endless possibility that lie within a Saturday. And how can I bring that sensibility to the work that I'm doing now to give myself more energy as I'm trying to push that rock and while I'm ex at the same time extending a hand and letting other people know that I'm here for them? Yeah. You know, where it all seems like a, it's all too much, I feel like I can lean back and just bathe in a song like this one called The Dolphins by Fred Neal. We were talking about how we value ourselves and how we can shift those value systems away from product, productivity and, and capitalist requirements and really dig into who we are as people and, you know, how do else do we want to value ourselves? I'm thinking about that because when you talk about that, Saturday child, you know, endless possibility on, on some day you have, what do you do with mm -hmm. that time? What do you, what would you be proud to do with that time? You know, if you had to present something to someone or, or tell the story, I think that's a great way to think about value systems because look, I, I haven't had a job in a, in a little while now. So mm -hmm. all of my days could be like that, but it's, instead they're like something else. They're filled with things that I value, you know, the the dreams that I see and and all of those things. So I think that's an important aspect of, you know, those lyrics that you're reading. I mean, let's let, let's just talk literally if all of your days were like that Saturday child, you know, what do you envision your life looking like? Where would you pull value, self value, value for others? Mm. Uh, it would be a happier one. Sure. Yeah, and I think it'd be well-balanced. I think that there would be time for a lot more. 
because um, I wouldn't be tied to something that I don't want to do. And, and, and tied to, do... to the things you do want to be tied to. Anyway. hey, <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go in for some of that too. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I don't know. Just an important thing to think about, you know, how we, how we value ourselves. And I don't know, maybe that's a good exercise for people. If, you know, you feel sort of lost or stuck in a rut or looking for new possibilities, pretend that you have all of the time in the world. You don't have to worry about uh, bills or kids or whatever. You just have you and time. What would you do with it? What would you value doing with that time? And also to take away from it, uh, knowing that the world may never change, but you don't stop. You, you, you never, ever give up. You have to keep pushing the rock. You have to keep trying to get things to change. Like the Negro spiritual said, keep your hand on the plow, hold on. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that, that idea is affirmed across culture and is such an important thing. I'm um, listening to that. Um, may, we're we're going to get into the third movement here in a second, but I just wanted to mention that listening, listening to that music here, let, let's actually play a little bit of this opening again. When I hear these um, guitar chords, if we wanted to do some sort of orchestral arrangement, what if those guitar chords were like soft marimba tremolos, and then maybe you have the violins, the high strings sort of putting on top of that, and then his voice, you know, of course that's a bassoon solo. I was going to say, put a bassoon on that. <laughs> but you know, that that's that's one, you know, just what pops into my mind when it talks about, when I think about engaging new audiences, and I, I know that there are a lot of folks out there who really appreciate Fred Neal. How, how, you know, much would they appreciate seeing an orchestral expansion of this song that they have so many memories connected to or feelings about, you know, that's how we can really connect with communities. We just have to put in the equity to make the arrangements, to see what legal things have to happen, to uh, market it to the audiences that it needs to be marketed to, and then executing it in a way that uh, will have these people thinking that this ensemble, this group of musicians is a group of musicians that care something about me and my sensibilities. So maybe maybe there is a an instrumental arrangement of, of it out there i'll have to do some research but mm. really great track there love his love his voice well uh we're getting into the third movement this week's guest is andrea davis pinkney um i'm reading a little bit here from her wikipedia she's a new york times best-selling author of numerous books for children and young adults uh she's a recipient of the coretta scott king award and uh does a lot of work at the intersection of prose, writing, um, that sort of art, um, and Black folks. Well, she was invited uh, to be the librettist for an adaptation, an opera adaptation of a children's book called The Snowy Day uh, that was put on by the Houston Grand Opera. Really incredible piece of music that just showcases Black joy. It's literally about a Black boy who goes out and plays in the snow. You know, how revolutionary is it to just <laughs> demonstrate Black peace and Black black joy um the book of course um was written by ezra jack keats and it was actually banned once upon a time it came out in 1962 and folks banned the book because the boy is black the boy didn't go out in the snow and protest he didn't go out in the snow You're and talk kidding. about how evil white people are he went out in the snow and played in it and that in itself was an act of protest and that's something that we need to think about as we think about um 
all of the ways in which black artistry and artist uh, art by uh, BIPOC individuals can be celebrated on these stages. It's not all about oppression. Yeah. It's not all about just being downtrodden. Sometimes it's about going out and putting on your red suit and playing in the snow. Anyway, so Andrea Davis Pinckney uh, wrote the libretto uh, for this opera. So we talk about that process, her interactions with Joel Thompson, and really what it means to transform spaces using joy. So to get us into uh, my conversation with her, we're going to hear a little bit from the opera the snowy day this is a performance featuring karen slack shout out to karen um in an aria called mama's misgivings the bit here uh from the opera the snowy day to get into my conversation with andrea davis pinckney of having a background, you know, working in publishing, working at Essence Magazine, as you pointed out, you know, working in black media is that we bring our lens and our experience to it. So in opera, because there is still such a dearth of African-American, black, you know, a lot of cultural content that's just not there and the audiences, mm-hmm. it was just this, this big wide open door for both myself and Joel Thompson to step into and celebrate and bring our our experience and uh, you know our desire to sh- to share good storytelling and and uh, and again the black experience. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you had a relationship already with opera or or classical music in general. Yes, yes. I I have a, a long standing relationship with opera. Uh, have been going since I'm a child and. Uh, to have the opportunity to to bring the snowy day to the stage is is truly a, a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many things about uh, classical training and the and the pipeline that I love to think about and and even critique. One of the main things being the way in which those pathways and pipelines keep many of us from that black centered approach to art, that black centered thought. We spend all, all of our time learning and reading and practicing Beethoven and, and, and Brahms and, and those folks. I wonder, um, to that point, I wonder if you can speak to um, your upbringing and the way that your parents really uh, prioritized making sure that you were exposed to black art and black thought and uh, even black activism. Well, I am a, a child of the civil rights movement. Um, I was born one month after Martin Luther King Jr. gave his pivotal I Have a Dream speech. Mm. And I was born in Washington, D.C. My my parents were civil rights foot soldiers. And uh, my dad marched with King. In fact, at the I Have a Dream speech on August 28th, 1963, um, I was in my mom's tummy. Uh, my dad went down to march with King for the march. My mom wanted to go, was not able to attend. She Mm. watched it on television. I joke that I heard that speech, even though I was, you know, about to be born. 
I believe that the, the resonance of that moment really, really stuck with me. And, um, you know, it was, it was from there, you know, I, I grew up in a family where our summer vacations, and I kind of say that with quotes around it, uh, you know, our, our quote unquote vacations were going to the NAACP annual conference. You know, they were civil rights marches. They were uh, cultural activities around, you know, African-American art and culture. Um, the Urban League Conference we went to every July. And then in September or right before school began, we would attend the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington, D.C. Wow. So this was my this was my upbringing. And I would always a little bit, you know, back then when I was a child, um, kind of not look forward to that moment when you would go back to school and everyone would say, you know, what did you do this summer? Um, you know, I, I would be thinking, well, we loaded up in our station wagon and, you know, I went to hear Jesse Jackson, you know, give a speech. Um, but now, you know, looking back, you know, comparing that to other kids that went to camp in the beach, you know, what a valuable experience that was and, um, you know, how much it informed everything that I, that I care so deeply about now. I can't help but to think about those car rides. What were the conversations? What was on the radio on your way to these conferences and to the Black Caucus and, and those things? Well, you know, the, we we sang civil rights songs. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about the speeches that we had we had heard, and uh, you know, and what we were about to hear and what we we were about to experience. And I, of course, I, again, I didn't know it back then, but I was I was experiencing living history as it was happening, and I was I was part of it um, as a young person. And uh, you know, I, I think of young people today who are ex experiencing the same thing. You know, they're out on the sidewalks, they're out on the streets. They are modern activists and they are living it as it's unfolding. And, and that's what I was doing as a young person as well. One of the things that I have really had to uh, center on when it comes to my work is making sure people actually hear me. It's one thing for me to preach and talk about, oh, white people this and X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I need folks to be able to hear the, the message unemotionally or, you know, so that the action can actually happen, they, so that there can actually be action. When I think about all of the work that you've done when it comes to children's literature, there must be um, some sort of approach that prioritizes making sure the kids hear you, making sure that these young people reading these books can actually consume what you're trying to get them to understand. Right, absolutely. So, you know, I feel that as someone who writes books for young people, um, I, I have a job and my, my job is this, it is to reach out a hand and invite a young person into an experience. And I, I do that, my own kind of personal creative approach to that is something I've come to call the page one pact. Hmm. And the page one pact is a, a deal. It's a covenant. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making an approach to a young person. And, and I, I am doing that by what the first thing they read on page one. And I'm saying, young person, I'm making a deal with you. The deal is this. We are going to go on a journey together. I am reaching out a hand. I'm, I'm inviting you to take it. We are gonna go on a journey by virtue of the storytelling. And after a while, you won't even know you're reading a book. Well, You won't even know you're reading because you are so invested and so inspired by the journey that you are right there. And, and you know, it's similar to what happens in a theatrical production. You know, a curtain opens 
and you're inviting somebody to step into an experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's how we engage young people in, in, at least I engage young people or I attempt to in the work that I do. Over the course of your career so far, how have you engaged uh, the challenge of technology? Kids, you know, today they have TikTok. They all, have, you know, even I see two and three year olds with iPads. Uh, are, are there challenges in uh, continuing the work as a children's author, con- considering all of the technology you're competing against? Yes, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yes, we are in the world of technology. Yes, <laughs> and right, those young people have so many devices around them. But what's so interesting is even with TikTok, even with Instagram, even with all of these platforms going on, it is all about storytelling. And what is similar to a picture book is the economy of it, mm. is that you know you need to convey an idea very simply and very quickly and you need to invite a reader or a viewer in. So, so believe it or not, I'm actually learning from some of this technology. I'm, I'm learning from, from TikTok and some of the other platforms uh, because I see how engaged young people are and there's something that they are drawn to. And at the end of the day, it's about telling a good story in a short amount of time. Yeah. And I'm, uh, we're going to talk a little bit here in a few minutes about the relationship between a uh, librettist and composer and what that process is like. But, you know, when you're using the phrase picture book brought to my mind, the relationship between author and illustrator, I wonder if you can speak to that. Does one come before the other? Do they grow and evolve together? You know, I always say that someone needs to make a reality TV show about what goes on behind the scenes when creating a, a, a work of literature for children. <laughs> um, so with a, a picture book, an illustrated book, the words usually come first. Hmm. And one thing that folks don't know, or many folks don't realize, is that the typically the author and the illustrator do not meet each other. Oh, they, wow. don't, they don't collaborate. They don't go to Starbucks together. They don't hang out at Thanksgiving. They do not work together. Um, it seems counterintuitive. Uh, but there's a good reason for it. The reason is this. The artist needs to be free to create a vision that he or she is inspired to create without an author talking in that person's ear. So it is the job of the individual in the publishing company, the editor, and I, I serve that role also, to keep those individuals separate. So in my own case, I've got a little bit of a unique situation because I'm married right. to Brian Pinkney, um, you know, my husband of over 30 years, and, and we collaborated, you know, collectively on 70 books together. So, so I live with the guy that illustrates many of my books. You know, we share a tube of toothpaste and a box of cereal in the family. <laughs> um, and so the way that we do it is that Brian's studio is not in our home in Brooklyn, New York. It is in a completely different neighborhood. He wakes up and goes to work. He leaves the house. He goes to a studio. And I'll, I'll be very honest when I say I've been to that studio one time. Um, I've only set foot in it once. And that was before he was moved in. It was new then. He was just moving in. And I came and I looked around. I said, oh, this looks like a nice place to have a studio. And I think maybe on one other occasion, he had to drop something off and I stayed in the car and waited for him. <laughs> um, and I don't see the work. I don't comment on it. I don't see it. 
Um, I, I see it ultimately at the, in the end when he brings home the finished paintings, they are laid out on the living room floor. I look at them and I make comments at that time, but it, it's not collaborative by any means. And again, it seems strange, but Brian, for example, we wrote a picture book about Ella Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, he doesn't need me saying, you know, I always thought Ella Fitzgerald should have a yellow dress. I think she should be doing this. And the cover of that book is a good example of what we're talking about. The cover of the picture book biography, Ella Fitzgerald, she is coming out of that cover like a balloon in the Macy's Day Parade. Her mm -hmm. skirt is like a big globe with with uh, images of the buildings of, of notable architecture throughout the world, which is celebrating the many places and, and the worlds that Ella Fitzgerald inhabited. So if he had had me saying, you know, I think she should have a yellow dress on, that would limit the thinking. I never could have imagined he would create this luminous cover with this big purple skirt coming out to greet the reader in such an evocative visual way. You're, you're right. We do need that reality show because that is definitely not how I pictured that that, that process working. That's that's really fascinating to me. I, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the book, the children's book that inspired the opera, The Snowy Day, the uh, Ezra Jack Keats work. I heard you speak to this book as groundbreaking in the way that it portrayed blackness. It's not a civil rights story. It's not a story of struggle. It's a story about a little black boy. I, I wonder if you can speak to that significance, how how that was groundbreaking. Yes. Well, uh, let me give you a little historical context, and it's why the book, again, is so important to me and to so many people. So The Snowy Day was published at a very important moment in America's journey, in America's civil rights journey. Hmm. So as I mentioned, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his landmark I Have a Dream speech in August of 1963. One month later, well, two weeks later, four girls went to church in Birmingham, Alabama mm -hmm. on September 15th and they did not return home, four black girls. They were victims of a, a racially motivated terrorist bombing. So you have these two realities. You have Martin Luther King Jr. giving his, I have a dream speech for 250,000 people. There's great hope in the air. There's excitement, change. Two weeks later, there's this devastation, the unimaginable. In the middle of all of that, here comes a book entitled The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. It is groundbreaking in that it is the first mainstream book to feature an African-American child. It broke the color barrier. And here we see effervescent Peter in his red snowsuit, simply enjoying a day in the snow. And in the flap copy of the book, which is the, the text, the copy that you read on the flap of a book in all of the advertisements for the book at that time, his race is never mentioned because this is a story about the universal joy and effervescence and fun of going out in the snow and exploring a new frontier. And I think that's one of the reasons 
that it's just been embraced all these years. You know, here we are more than a half a century later uh, from the time the book is published. And just yesterday, I was uh, noting to my friends at the Houston Grand Opera that the snowy day appears on uh, the independent booksellers bestseller list. So here we are still all these years later, it's still a bestseller. It's still changing lives, opening doors, um, inviting so many readers into the experience of a fun afternoon in the snow. You know, while the the story is universal and and just so heartwarming, yeah, I, the whole time watching the opera, the phrase that kept going through my mind was, "It's so interesting how such a cold setting can be so heartwarming the whole time." You know, um, so as effervescent and as universal uh, as as this is, I still feel like there is an affirmation of blackness there? Am, am I reaching? Is, is is there something even to consider there, despite the fact that Peter's race isn't explicitly named? You are not reaching. Absolutely. And I think <laughs> it is one of the beauties of the book. For example, there's that very tender moment in the book where Peter comes in from his day out in the snow, and there's his mother removing his socks, so loving, so beautiful. And you see this this tender, important moment between an African-American mother, a black mother and her son. Uh, and you see this beautiful family and, um, and, you, and you see his complexion yeah. even. He is a brown skinned boy. And um, you know, again, that's the, the, the beauty of what Ezra Jack Keats did with, with the artwork. Um, and, and what that presented and allowed was an opportunity in creating the libretto to really expand the canvas on some of those moments. Uh, that moment where Peter does come in and his mama is removing his socks, you know, there's a, there are, you know, our lines in the libretto, you know, about her beautiful hands, you know, they're mm -hmm. brown, they're beautiful, they're soft, they're tender, they're loving. And his, his feet, his wiggly toes, you know, growing. And you see this, again, loving, evocative relationship between the two of them. Um, it was also very important for Joel Thompson, the amazing composer of the work, and I to create an intact Black family. Mm -hmm. So in the opera, which does not appear in the book, we meet Daddy. Um, daddy, by the way, uh, Peter, the main character, does have a daddy in future books by Ezra Jack Keats that came after the snowy day. But in the opera, we meet him in the snowy day. and We see this these loving moments with this Black family. One of my favorite uh, kind of nods to my own Black experience as a child is when it's called bundling, when Peter's about to go on the snow and mama says, you know, first you need to bundle and she's, you know, pulling together the, the snowsuit and she she brings out the, the jar of Vaseline and she's greasing mm -hmm. his cheeks. You know, I mean, that's just so black. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was me, you know, and, and what's funny is in, in sitting in the audience for, you know, several performances now, you know, hearing the giggles, you know, mm -hmm. among black folks, <laughs> because they know that, you know, we grease the cheeks of our kids <laughs> before they go out in the snow. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought as soon as I heard that when watching the opera. I was like, oh, OK, so this is a black, black opera. OK, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something that I, I another thing I couldn't help to think about that I would uh, you know, love to hear your thoughts on. We have had many iterations um, on TV, on the stage, you know, of the black family. Um, but colorism is always an issue. We'll have this complected daughter and these complected uh, parents or whatever. In the snowy day, I felt like we just saw 
a regular old black family. There, there wasn't any respectability around it. It's just the, this is what a black family looks like. I wonder if you consider that significant. Is there any significance there? Yes. I mean, you know, black is beautiful. You know, yeah. these brown skinned people loving together, celebrating. It's it's black joy. Yeah. And it, it's black joy on the part of Peter, who experiences his day in the snow. It's black joy among mama, daddy, the the, the community. Yeah. You know, we we see the joyousness among these people. Yeah. Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the uh, reality show about author and illustrator relationships is coming. But uh, but but in, in, until that comes, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that in relation to the librettist composer relationship. Are there similarities there? Is it completely different? Well, it's completely different. And, okay. you know, so uh, in, in entering the experience, the first thing I learned was it is wholly collaborative. And I loved every minute of it. So Joel Thompson and I, when we were both kind of invited to participate, you know, as composer and librettist together, the first thing we did was we we got in touch immediately, um, and we decided that we were going to meet for coffee. Um, we met on a snowy day, uh, <laughs> right right across the street from Carnegie Hall, which seems so fitting. Yeah. Um, and we sat, you know, for quite a long time. We both showed up with our individual copies of the snowy day and we mapped it out. You know, what was so incredible was we we both came to that that coffee table um, with very similar ideas. The idea of creating a, a black family, of expanding the canvas on on mama, on daddy. Um, it was also really important to us. And again, it, it's like we were these kind of two creative beings coming together with, with similar notions was that we couldn't ignore the fact that Peter, son of a black mother, black father, is about to go out on his own alone in the snow wearing a hoodie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that is addressed in the aria entitled Mama's Misgivings. And um, you know, I came I come to that as a black mother. Um, and what, what Joel did with the music for that piece, what Karen Slack does, who plays mama in the opera to deliver it. It is, it is truly, uh, an emotional moment. I, I feel it every time it's performed. Um, and you can feel the, the palpable, um, emotion in the audience. I'm so glad you brought that up because at uh, at the beginning of the opera, before Peter goes out into the snow, and you know you hear the the mother singing, you know those words. I can't help but to deep inside of myself think, "Oh my goodness, is something going to happen to Peter? Is this going to be an opera <laughs> where we, we we see something?" I wonder, um, you know, uh, what's the relationship between maintaining this joyous story? And, you know, the manifestation of the trauma that Black folks know exist. I was, if I didn't know, if I hadn't already talked with Joel about the happiness of this opera, I would have expected something to happen to Peter based on the earlier, you know, what you, what you were speaking to. I, I wonder what role that plays in, uh, in your approach. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting that we are, you know, living at a moment where we we feel that we have to hold our breath or like mm-hmm. you know we we, exactly. we don't know you know that there's that anticipation of something bad that's going to happen it, it's unfortunate but it, it's the world that we currently live in and the refrain of that aria mama's entitled mama's misgivings is oh how mama's eyes are watching this world 
oh, how mama's eyes are watching this world. And that's enough. That says it, you know, that indicates, you know, right, I'm going to, I've made this promise, my child, I'm going to let you, my little red chested birdie go out in the snow, but oh, how mama's eyes are watching this world. And so that says it essentially. Um, While, you know, traditionally operas have a lot of tragedy, this does not. Um, But we feel that mother's, uh, you know, the, the impending or, or, or the, the fear that something bad is going to happen. At the same time, while we expanded the canvas on Peter's world for the, the theatrical impact of it, um, it was very important to me to stay very close to Ezra Jack Keats's original story, to the DNA of the book, um, and to not veer from that. So everything that you see on the stage happens in the snowy day. Yeah, yeah. There are so so many uh, black and brown people who can read this book, watch the opera and see themselves. Think of a memory of when they played in the snow as a little kid. I'm from Tennessee and I didn't see any kind of snow like that until I was well and grown. And I know that that's the case for uh, many of the youths who saw this show uh, down in Texas. I wonder if you uh, if that was a consideration when creating this work of art, the audience and the kids in the audience may have never experienced anything like Peter. Yes. You know, it's, it's just kind of so interesting that the world premiere was at the uh, Houston grand opera uh, in Texas. And um, what was so interesting was the the night of the opening as I was you know walking to the opera house, it was this kind of warm, balmy evening. Um, mm-hmm. The folks at the Houston grand opera did a wonderful job. They created snow on the plaza those wow. entering the opera house so it was real, people could make a snowball a real live snowball but i think you know in answer to your question again it speaks to the enchantment of snow and the universal nature of of playing of 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 exploring of you know there's one piece in the libretto called whisper walk mm-hmm. where peter is out alone in the snow and his heart's saying hi and He's listening to his own joyous, contemplative thoughts. And that can happen for any child and does happen for many, many children, um, whether there's there's snow or not. Yeah, yeah. And what ways uh, do you think about the grownups uh, when, when you're creating your work or I guess specifically uh, when working on this libretto? Were, were there Easter eggs or, or thoughts about the, the grownups in the audience? Yes, yes. So... My original idea or thought was to title the opera, The Snowy Day, An Opera for All. Mm-hmm. And um, that subtitle in my mind, An Opera for All, indicates that this is for all ages, that it's for all races, all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. And so in the creation of the libretto, I wanted to invite as many viewers, listeners, into the experience. I've, I've since heard from gr- grown-ups who've seen it, who don't have children or kind of went on their own, you know, that they could relate to mama, they could relate to daddy, to mm-hmm. some of the adults, uh, to, to so much of go- that goes on. Um, you know, is a five-year-old gonna understand the impact of a song, Mama's Misgivings? Right. Um, you know, perhaps not. They won't understand the deeper, ver- you know, the deeper meaning of, oh, how mama's eyes are watching this world. But of course, They'll rejoice, you know, in those moments, you know, when Peter is, you know, with those 
big boys and the snowballs are flying back and forth. So I, I think this is an opera where there really is something for everyone to enjoy. When we talk about deeper meanings, you know, I'm notorious for tearing everything apart and, and making different connections. When I think about uh, the snowball fight in this opera, I'm thinking about things like a lack of class solidarity, even the idea of a, a black boy being surrounded by white snow, whiteness in, in, in whatever ways we can we can reach. I wonder if um, there are other deeper maybe even hidden meanings that uh, folks can pull from this production. Yes, okay, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So here's, here's the thing about snow. It doesn't decide where it's gonna fall. Hmm. It is for everyone to enjoy. It is nature's blanket and snow, it can fall on a stoop, it can fall on the street, it can fall in a rich neighborhood or a not rich neighborhood. It, it, is, it is mother nature saying, I embrace you, I envelop you. I, I love everybody that I touch. And to me, that's the universal nature of that, that white blanket um, that is really so interesting is that in the snowy day, the book, and also in the opera, you'll notice that the snow is not white. It's not white. Ezra Jack Keats created a, a variegated, collage palette where the snow is a it's it's glinting and glistening with color it is blue it is pink it is glints of yellow um there are greens in there this it's pink it's 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 a glowy experience and that is what amy rubin the set designer has so brilliantly recreated on the stage it is never white, 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 white snow. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, if you really look at snow, when it falls, there are many colors coming through. Yeah. And I think that that is symbolic and emblematic of so much that we're doing in the opera, so much of what Ezra Jack Keats does in the book, that if you take the time to look closely and to experience it and to to take a moment, as Peter does on a whisper walk, you will see that it's it's not all whiteness. Yeah. It's for, there there are many colors on the landscape. Your use of the phrase "many colors" reminds me of the friend that uh, Peter makes. She she speaks Spanish and 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 hangs out with him. I, I found I found it uh it was noticeable to me that uh, when Spanish was used in the libretto, it wasn't. Uh, to be translated, it wasn't, it, it was just presented. You know, que pasa was just a phrase that was said. And I guess that requires cultural competency on our part as audience members to understand what that means. I wonder if you can speak to the uh, intentionality of including uh, the Spanish language and Spanish speaking characters in the story. Yes, yeah, so when Peter's out on his adventure, he meets a friend, Amy. So Amy does not appear in the book, The Snowy Day. However, Amy is Peter's best friend in future books that come after The Snowy I Day. I see. They are very close. So again, I, I go back to staying to the true to the heart and DNA of Ezra Jack Keats's canon, his storytelling, and his intention. So while Amy appears in the opera, she does not appear in The Snowy Day, the book. However, there are many future books, a, a letter to Amy, um, Amy is Peter's best friend in, in Keats's world. So here comes Amy in the opera. She is a Latin A girl. 
And as you point out, she greets him speaking Spanish because that's her language. Why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it flows very naturally. It's just, it's part of the fabric of the conversation. She teaches him kind of some Spanish through, through song and verse. And again, one of my favorite moments is at the end of their playtime when their respective fathers are calling them home. Yeah. So daddy is calling Peter and Poppy is calling Amy and the two fathers are singing together. Um, daddy in English and Poppy in the corresponding Spanish, but the way, again, the way Joel has composed it, they are interwoven. And again, it's another very emotional moment. And it's one that fathers in the audience will really experience um, uh, wholeheartedly. Oh yeah, absolutely. So backing up from the snowy days specifically, I'm thinking about the ways in which children's literature has become so very diverse. I remember seeing um, the 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 children's book about uh, black hair for the first time and just getting choked up by you know the the progress that's being made on that front. I wonder, in your opinion, is the um, heartwarming, maybe unoffensive approach to diversity, inclusion, uh, diversity and inclusion, um, a better path forward than speaking to some of the more hard truths that may exist in, uh, you know, the opera Malcolm X or, or, or other or other works of art? Well, you know, we, we all come from many experiences. There are many experiences in, in Black life, in Black history, in Black culture. So yes, there's hair love, you know, yes, there's Malcolm X. Yes, there's the snowy day. Uh, you know, we, we like every people on this planet, come from a range of experiences, joys, gratitudes, tragedies, uh, you know, triumphs, togetherness, family. And so I think what's important in children's literature and in opera and in many art forms is to present the kaleidoscope of experiences. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's something that I, you know, personally endeavor to see more of in, in opera. Um, you know, I have had just such a great time with the snowy day, you know, I have so many ideas for future operas because we need to see the entire tapestry that exists, you know, in the lives of people of color. Yeah. Yeah. How can uh, folks learn more about you and, and your work and, and some of your future projects? Thank you. So uh, you can get me on, you can see uh, many things that I'm doing on Facebook um, and Instagram and Twitter. I want to, in in closing here, I want to wrap back around to uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. You're being born uh, in close proximity to the I have a dream speech. When when I think about uh, that phrase, I have a dream, I think about Peter's dream in the opera and and in the book and how the dream, you know, sort of caused him to toss and turn. He had he had worry. I wonder, um, you know, what affirmations you can offer, you know, toward people tossing and turning about their proverbial dreams or visions of the future. It's so easy for us to think of the classical arts as something that is going to remain white for so long. We have such a long road to hoe, as my as my grandmother would say. But uh, I, I wonder, you know, speaking to the difference between Martin Luther King's dream and Peter's dream, if there are affirmations that you can offer to anyone who has a dream, a vision. Yes, yes, of course. So, in the opera, there's uh, that kind of 
final moment where it's called toss, turn, dream. And Peter's having a very fitful sleep. And it's because he's put his snowball in his pocket and the snowball has melted. Um, it's not there when he returns. And so he has this bad dream. The beauty of that is that he wakes up the next morning. He sees that new snow has fallen. And there's that final piece in the opera called New Day Rising. And that's really the entire kind of point really, is that we can all look to a new day rising. Yes, there'll be impermanence. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, there will be hard times. But the new day rising is looking out the window, waking up and understanding that there's, there's something new and, and the future is bright and very friendly. I really appreciated Andrea's use of the phrase New Day Rising. So I thought we would transition out of that with a tune called New Day Rising, a bit of it there, uh, a work by Steve Reinecke as performed by the Washington Winds. We actually featured Washington Winds last week when we were talking about Imani. So, you know, oh, wow. extra shout out to um, that ensemble. Um, I was so honored to get to talk uh, with with Andrea, just an incredible uh, that this sort of work is happening in art spaces, you know, telling all of our stories, not some of them, you know, not the oppressive ones, but all of them. I'm going to um, feature my conversation next week with uh, Joelle, who wrote the music for the opera. So Looking really, forward really, to that really excited yeah. um, about that. Before we get into the fourth movement, I wonder if your work has ever engaged children or has been uh, children adjacent. I know my first radio job every Monday I had to um, talk to the kids uh, for a few minutes following a little kids bumper that we will put on uh, Monday afternoons as the kids are riding home from school with their NPR listening parents, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I, I've, I've, you know, and of course I've been a teacher, you know, I used to love uh, teaching the little kids, the Orf Schulwerk kids, you know, teaching them steady beat and all that sort of thing. But I wonder if, if your work has ever been child pointed are, are you are you completely out of your depth when it comes to the the youngsters a lot of the time yeah um the nursery rhyme and fable adaptation project that i work on uh classical story time oh yeah all right um but for me that's more theater i get to write i get to do voices i get to perform yeah um i start getting a rash if too many kids are around me for too long <laughs> so i have to be very careful <laughs> about my exposure i hear you i hear you well <laughs> we, we gonna do our best we have we just we have to never forget that you know the kids are out there too the children what did whitney houston say i believe that children are our future so sometimes we just need to make sure that we're remembering that they're there and to engage them in every way we can just as they were engaged by this opera for all the subtitle for the snowy day so again huge thank you and shout out to andrea davis pinckney all right well uh dimitri shostakovich once wrote 
a piece of music, maybe not for a child, but his child. His son was turning 19 and he wrote a piano concerto for him. Uh, of course, when we talk about Shostakovich, it's easy to get into the inter uh, the intersection of music and things like communism and socialism as it applies to his life in Soviet Russia. So to get us into the topic of our final movement this week, we're going to listen to a bit of that piano concerto by Shostakovich. Shostakovich stays. We we can talk a lot about the European composers who we need to get out here and move to the side. I I can compromise and say that some works by Beethoven should stay because they are important to the genre. I think the story in general of Dmitry Shostakovich has to stay. Mm -hmm. You know, when we transform classical spaces, Shostakovich's music will be there because there's some conversations that we need to have. Um, and as I mentioned, um, one that we're having today. So we talked about it last week, and, and I'm trying to be consistent this year, I want to explore more conversations of class solidarity, especially class solidarity and anti-capitalism within the arts. Many of the great leaders, I'm talking about Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, uh, Angela Davis, who, who is uh, still here, through their activism, eventually made their way to capitalism as one of our barriers when it comes to uh, demolishing racism and transforming society. Uh, I actually wanted to pl uh, play a clip from Angela Davis to get us into this very brief conversation we're going to have. This is from Democracy Now!, in which Angela Davis is responding to a question concerning the link between racism and capitalism. Racism is integrally linked to capitalism, uh, and, and I think it's a mistake to assume that we can combat racism by leaving capitalism in place. Um, as Cedric Robinson uh, pointed out in his book, Black Marxism, capitalism is racial capitalism. Uh, um, and of course, to just say for a moment uh, that uh, Marx pointed out um, that what he called primitive accumulation, um, um, capital doesn't just appear from nowhere. The original capital was provided by the labor of slaves. The industrial. I'll let y'all listen to the the rest of that. But Scott, let's let's just briefly unpack a little bit of what is being explored here, and we can connect it to the arts. When we talk about capitalism being racial capitalism, what is your response, or or what are your thoughts on the idea that? capitalism at it, as it exists in the United States is in itself racist because of how that capital was created in the first place. Mm. The first thing that leaps to mind for me is generational wealth mm -hmm. or the ability for uh, a, a married couple to be able to financially assist their children. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like um, uh, I got some help from my parents when it came time for me to get a house. I, yeah. I got some help from my dad. I know that there's a lot of people out there that are just flat out getting houses bought for them by sure, their parents. Sure. But even in that little bit of help for the down payment that I got, now I find myself trying to reconcile that 
versus the people that I see around me, or at least that I used to see around me in my neighborhood before the the big sell-off happened here the last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, don't have that ability. You know, they're they're trying to get money together so that they could move to a to, to rent a better place. Right. Right. And I'm thinking, well, how am I going to maximize the value of this house so I can buy one? And so I have to I have to check my privilege there. Excuse me, check my privilege there. Yeah, even when it comes to the earliest stages of adulthood, some folks have parents who are set up to support them throughout their college years, maybe even pay for the college itself. Right. While others of us, you know, are ruining our credit, trying to do everything we can, taking out the loans to make it to the same place as the people who already have that support. I know that folks don't like to think of themselves as oppressed, but if we're going to recognize the the racist uh, foundations of American capitalism, we have to also speak to the ways in which that oppresses not only Black people, certainly Black folks, but not only Black people, but all folks in a similar class as we are. Mm-hmm. And, and even I, and right. I, I had to say lower class because that, that in itself is capitalist nonsense, you know, but working class people, you know, how it oppresses all of us. Um, The way that I think about that concept, if I want to introduce it to people, is the idea, um, again, touching back on uh, the idea of Saturday Child, you know, what you were talking about in the second movement, the ability to be free with our time and with our creativity, with our desires, joys, families, whatever, is hampered by the requirements of capitalism, Mm -hmm. having to go to a job not necessarily because you love the mission of whatever it is you're doing, but you because you have to go punch in so that you can fit into this machine that is American capitalism. So when we make decisions because of work, when we, when we decide not to do things or to do things, not to say things or to say things because of our jobs, that is a manifestation of capitalism's oppressive nature on all of us. How would you or, or what are your thoughts on initiating that conversation with people, letting them know that they are actually oppressed by something? You know, it leaves you feeling like Morpheus, like, you know, you, whatever he said, you're in a, you were born into a prison that you cannot see, smell, taste, or touch or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, how do you have that conversation with someone who may not have ever thought about capitalism in this way? A recent conversation with my father, um, when he first enlisted in the Air Force, I said, now, Dad, they, when you got in, they gave you a place to live, all the food you could eat, and medical care, and a little bit of money in your pocket, right? Yep. And then when you had a family, you get a little bit more money, and maybe they move you to, you know, uh, military housing, you know, something like that. And if you didn't like the job that you were in, you could cross-train, right? Oh, sure. And they pay you to, to cross-train into your new career, don't they? Yes, of course. Dad, that is socialism. And he said, well, I was working in exchange for all that. I said, yeah, and nobody's talking about not working. <laughs> you know, we're, we're just talking about equity. Not necessarily, but go on. You know what I, yeah, go off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So trying to get him to think about it in that context of like, what could you do if you could be paid to cross train into a career that you would like to explore? Mm-hmm. But you can't. Because you can't afford both your mortgage and the tuition and daycare. Yeah. And even if you could afford all those things, how many hours in a day do you have 
to dedicate to it. So on the converse, well, or to go along with that rather, what if a place to live were treated as a human right and not as a right to the person who can afford to pay the mortgage? Mm -hmm. What if childcare and education were viewed in this country as human rights? You know, mm -hmm. so as we, uh, as I always say, the conversation of anti-racism once upon a time seemed ridiculous to be had within the confines of uh, classical music and, and all that sort of thing. Now we're here. Now people are having the conversation. I feel like we're, we have to eventually, if we're going to be honest about anti-racism in the arts, we have to begin to be real about anti-capitalism in the arts as a means toward anti-racism do you think and i know this is a big question do you think do you think arts institutions can survive anti-capitalist waves anti-capitalist movements when more people begin to have ideas about class solidarity and about how uh, breaking down a capitalist capitalist structure is required as many people have said angela davis and others toward eradicating racism is this something that an arts institution can survive do you think anti-racism and all of its reverberations is uh in conjunction can be in conjunction with the survival of these arts institutions, especially considering their current current status in the ecosystem. I think they can survive. The question is how long, hmm. because the big money that is keeping a lot of organizations afloat now and a lot that, of these structures in place that don't want to sever that yet or are afraid to because they don't know what the new audience is going to contribute. Mm -hmm. Um. They will last as long as their endowment, or as long or as long as their big donors. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't you think? No, am I, am I am I crazy? No, I'm 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 with you. I'm thinking even further ahead of the curve to where we aren't talking about buying tickets because we're talking about an organization that is of use to the community, that is significant to the community, so significant that this is something that is a human right alongside the housing that we shouldn't have to break our backs to pay for the groceries, the education, X, Y, and Z. I know that you know we may be a longer way away from actual anti-capitalist thought within the arts than we think uh, than that I may hope or whatever, but we have to start somewhere. So, you know, my message for this week is to be even more mindful about where you're spending your money. Every time you take a dollar out of your pocket to give it to somebody, think about the reverberations of, of that exchange. Who are you giving this money to? Is there an equitable way for you to go out of your way to give that money to another more grassroots, closer to the ground, local institution, store, whatever, to, to, begin to create some class solidarity, even within music. You know, I'm a bassoonist. We're always talking about buying cane. There are black owned cane um, organizations, you know, uh, hmm. or shops or whatever. You know, you can take lessons from black musicians, musicians of color, women musicians in your uh, in your town or whatever. So let's let's be more mindful of that as we get closer and closer to actually having the conversation of anti-capitalism in the arts. Let's be mindful about where we share and spread and donate our dollars. Thank you, everyone, especially those of you who donate to this. <laughs> and mm. we'll see you next week.